0: Let's get started, and I want to um, I want to bring up the the slides here. There are a number of things I want to try to do with this uh, material. We're in chapter two in our study of Ephesians uh, today. We want to deal with eleven through twenty-two. You have a copy of this chart. I underlined, uh, put a red um, underline under the topic we're dealing with. Um, as you know, uh, we, we dealt last week almost totally with the whole matter of grace versus legalism. And I shared with you uh, a number of points, and we discussed that. It was a really robust, good discussion. But as we get back now to the text um, in verses 11 through 22, Paul shifts from the individual personal position of the believer which he masterfully did in those uh, verses. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, Now he focuses to the community, the new covenant community, which is sometimes called the church. Now, as as we approach this, it's really important, if it's at all possible, to put ourselves back into the first century, because some of the things that he says here, it's a little hard for us to see why that was an issue it is not necessarily an issue today. But at that time, as you I'm sure aware, the, the primary issue in the early church was Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. As you know, the mother church, Jerusalem, the, the first church, uh, and all of the apostles, and of course even Jesus Christ himself, were Jewish and all the early leaders of the church were Jewish. But then, especially as Paul's ministry developed, which we did study in the book of Acts uh, a year or so ago, whenever we studied Acts, but anyway, as the gospel expanded, of course, the growth, and it was really explosive growth, was among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. As you know, Paul's sending church was Antioch, way up on the Orontes River north, in what today would be the northern part of Syria. But anyway, that was Gentile. That's where the that's where people were first called Christians. There were very few Jews in that church. And then as Paul moved in the first missionary journey into Galatia, and then the second missionary journey, he's in Greece, Athens, and Corinth, and all that. Third missionary journey, he centered in Ephesus, in all the Greek city-states, etc. I mean, Gentiles, by the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, and eventually hundreds of thousands, are coming to Christ. And this created a division. This created an issue because many of the Jewish Christians and this is part of what the book of Galatians is all about, this is part of what even some of the pastoral epistles first Timothy especially are all about. And it it's it was like an erosion for the Jews of the purity of the law. And so a group of them they would get the nickname Judaizers would say, well, we like what Paul says that you're justified by faith, but we also want people to keep parts of the law. We want them to circumcise their boys. We want to observe the holidays, feast days, Sabbath, that kind of thing. And the church leadership puts the foot down and says no. And so, what Paul is addressing here is all in this passage, eleven through twenty-two, all of the differences between Jew and Gentile, all of the differences that would define by the law, which was given to the Jewish people, to be used as a missionary outlet to reach everyone else, is is largely broken down. And Paul begins to use language, and this is at the end of the passage, that now we are one nation, one household, one temple. And that's the language he uses, and we'll get into that. This is a profound, revolutionary, deep-seated change in how people are to look at one another. And so what you'll start to see in the early church is Jew and Gentile worshiping together, Jew and Gentile sharing together in things. Now, there are some places where there remains tremendous hostility. So as we fast forward now to our century 2,000 years later, there is not primarily the struggle between Jew and Gentile, the old covenant community and the new covenant community. For the most part, in the 21st century, that's sort of a non-issue. However, in the 21st century, there are still enormous barriers to seeing the church as a unified whole, one nation. And I, that nation there—that doesn't mean nation with boundaries and you know a nation-state. Well, that's not what he's talking about. The word is ethnos. It's the one ethnic group. We're all in Christ. One household. We're a new house. The church, the ecclesia, and we're a new temple, the temple of God. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So today, you have the barriers, racial barriers, black, white, ethnic barriers, Hispanic, Asian. I mean, they're the kind of barriers that we see even in the church. So how do we look at that? We look at that in in this way. We are one people in Christ, and what is unifying center is Jesus, the gospel, and the church, and that's a challenge, because for the most part in the typical church today you do not see that diversity, you do not see that unity. So, in in what we're talking about here in this passage is applicable to our. our situation today. So let's get into the text here and begin to look at how Paul develops this. Now, as you look at the—and I have the whole slide here, uh, the whole passage here on this slide—and I I want you to observe a number of things with me as as we get started right away, because I want to try to read part of the passage. I read most of it last week. I don't want to do that again. But I want you to observe in verse 11— And verse 12 and verse 13, the time, the time statements, the temporal statements. Remember that, at one time. And then at the beginning of verse 12, at that time. Now verse 13, but now. And so similar to what we saw when we studied chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where in the first three verses Paul describes what we were like before Christ— but God, verse 4, he brought about the transformation, which is, of course, through Jesus Christ and through through the gospel. And so, the at one time, what, what was that? Remember, reflect, think about, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision. What does he mean by that? Well, the circumcision is another name, and actually that was a label that was used in the first century as a reference to the covenant people, the Jews. So the people of the circumcision, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, called non-Jews the uncircumcision. And correctly, the ESV, I read from the ESV translation, ESV editors have put that in quotation marks. Because that was a that was a phrase, a label, and actually it was a very unkind thing to say. And so Paul is saying there was a division. At one time there was a division, and you Gentiles in the flesh, meaning you were born by by your your natures, your Jew, uh, your Gentile, you're not Jew. The Jewish people called you uncircumcision which is made in flesh by hands, because circumcision is, of course, the cutting of the foreskin of a a, a little boy. Then he goes on. All right, so there was that division. You Gentiles remember the nature of that division, and he he, Paul, chooses to use the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the sign that a Jewish family was owned by God in the covenant community of God, and their son bears that mark. Then he goes on, remember, parallel, that at one time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Let's stop there. Because what he's going to do is itemize, and I've put blue numbers before each one, five distinctive differences between the covenant community, the Jewish people, and the non covenant circumcision, uncircumcision. So first, he says, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. Now, what makes this powerful is Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So he is declaring you were separated from the Messiah just because you're a Gentile. Whom does the Messiah come to first? He comes to the Jews. That's the whole—when you read the Gospels, you see that. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is excluding the Gentiles. My, oh my, he's not, and more about that in just a minute. But just because you're a Jew, you automatically expect the Messiah, you're looking for the Messiah, and they should have recognized the Messiah. But you, Gentiles, uncircumcision, non-covenant people— you are not expecting the Messiah. I mean, the people in Galatia, the people in Corinth, the people in Athens who were Gentiles, who were Greeks, Greco-Roman people, they weren't looking for the Messiah. They didn't even know about the Messiah. They didn't even know what the Jews were talking about. So that's a a separate and, and very crucial difference. And then he says, secondly, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And the commonwealth of Israel is a phrase, or actually, it's actually bringing in from the Old Testament, that covenant community of Israel. And he uses, and ESV has translated this really, really quite wonderfully, alienated. Now, that's a, that's that's a, that's in a verbal form, but the word alien as a noun, you know what that means. An alien, you're a non-citizen in the covenant community. You don't have the citizenship rights of the covenant community. You are outside the covenant community. And that, that is an indictment in that sense of how serious their situation was. And then thirdly, he says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Again, that's another really good translation. Strangers to the covenants. They didn't even know about the covenants. But what covenants of promise? if if we were in a building and having a clay, I'd take out the board and I'd write things, but you know enough about these, I hope, because you've been with me a number of years now. The first covenant would be the Abrahamic covenant, that, that promise God made to the Jewish people through Abraham, the patriarch, the founder of the Jewish people, an unconditional promise of what? Land, seed, and blessing. And so that they don't know about that. The people in Athens don't know about that. The second covenant of promise is a Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel seven sixteen is the easiest summary of that. But God made a promise to King David of an eternal kingdom, an eternal dynasty, and an eternal throne. The people in Rome, they don't know anything about that. They don't understand it. They're strangers to that. So when Paul says that, that's natural. That's understandable. That's sensible. But then thirdly, because you are separated from the Messiah, alienated from the covenant community, strangers to the covenants, you have no hope. And that is that is the most significant characteristic of the Gentiles. If they don't hear about the Messiah... And they don't hear about the promises that God has made to the human race through the Jews. Because remember, Jesus said to the woman at the Samaritan well in John chapter 4 that salvation comes through the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. He's coming to the Jews first. So the, the, the consequence of this situation of despair is no hope. And then without God in the world, you have no relationship with God. You have no understanding of who the true God is. And so these five characteristics of the difficult situation of the uncircumcision, again, using that pejorative term that was used by many uh, Jewish people, is, is illustrating and then summarizing the really desperate situation of Gentile people. They're not aware of it, but that's how desperate it was. And so, who acts? Who acts to change this? Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus. And so, that little phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus, is used 242 times in the New Testament to describe that sphere of blessing. You put your faith in Christ, you're in that sphere, if you will, that circle of blessing. The 33 things that happen to you when trust Christ are defined in that circle of being in Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, uncircumcision, have now been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For this to occur, Jesus had to die. Jesus had to shed his blood. Jesus had to atone for sin. So what Paul is now stressing here is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his mission, why he came to earth, why the incarnation was necessary. He now focuses on the rest of the chapter to to deal with how did this change the relationship between Jew and Gentile? How did this change, this barrier between Jew and Gentile? How did this alter the relationship between these two hostile groups spiritually? Paul uses a crucial word, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. How were the Gentiles, who were alienated from the covenant community, did not know about this Messiah, strangers to the covenants, without hope, without God, how did this finished work of Christ change this? How did he bring those who were far near? He himself is our peace. Now, the Greek word for peace is Irene. We get our proper name Irene from that. That helped to me and my daughter-in-law's name. But Irene, but the the Greek the Hebrew word is shalom. And I suspect that Paul really has that in mind here. I mean he's writing in the Greek language. But when he uses that term, and he will explain that here in just a little bit, he is our shalom. And that that, that Hebrew word shalom, and very similarly, the 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 Greek word Irene has the idea of all things are now right with God. All things have been settled with God. And because all things are right and all things have been settled with God, all things are right and all things have been settled between you and the Jews. That barrier, that dividing wall, that division, that, that hopelessness, that despair, that's been settled because Jesus is our shalom. And then he describes, because he's our shalom, look at the middle of verse 14, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, you could translate that by his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what I want to do here is I want you. I, you, I sent uh, Joel sent you an updated copy of the, the PowerPoint slides. This one is in that new update. But what I want you to do, and and please, try to do the best you can to follow me here. If you look at that arrow, and I've pointed it to the term sorek, which then this little circle points to this wall. This sorek is a a lattice screen or railing that prohibited Gentiles from coming into the temple proper on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And this symbolizes the division between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles could go to Temple Mount. Gentiles could go and worship. Gentiles could go, if they've entered the covenant community, they put their faith in God, they could offer sacrifices, but they couldn't go into the main part of the temple. They had to do it on the outside court. There was a division line, and that division line, that barrier, that seemingly irreconcilable difference between Jew and Gentile is symbolized in how Temple Mount was constructed. Gentiles were considered to be unclean, and just by being Gentiles. Now, they could put their faith in God. They could could enter the covenant community, and a lot changed, but they still are Gentiles. And so when Paul is using this language uh, that I just uh, showed you on the slide, dividing wall of hostility, he's referring to this. This was an affront to Gentiles. It was hard for Gentiles. Even when they joined the covenant community, there were still certain things they couldn't do according to jewish tradition. And so Paul is saying, Jesus did away with that. That seeming wall of hostility symbolized by what was happening on Temple Mount is gone. And this this we're going to talk a little more about this, but this should bring to mind what is in the book of Hebrews. Because the author of the book of Hebrews was written to Jews in the 1st century you, Jews, have got to understand that things have changed. That Jesus' sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. He's broken down all barriers between Jew and Gentile, and everyone now has 24-7 access to God because of the once-for-all sacrifice. So Paul is 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 illustrating by the word pictures, dividing wall of hostility, which was a real... Significant difference between Jew and Gentile, even among believers in the first century before Christ. How did he do this? How did he break down this wall of hostility? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, that that word abolishing is... It needs to be discussed a little bit, because really the idea is he rendered inoperative the law of commands expressed in the ordinances. How did he render inoperative the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances? Thesis of the book of Matthew, by fulfilling the law and the ordinances. And so ESV has chosen to translate that Greek term abolishing, that's not an incorrect translation, but it doesn't capture, in my judgment anyway, that's why some other translations choose something a little different, it doesn't quite capture what is really going on here. He sets it aside. He renders it inoperative. Why? Because he fulfilled it. By it, I mean the law expressed in the ordinances. Now, see, that, that too is another dividing line between Jew and Gentile. Because the Jew, before they come to faith in Christ as their Messiah, looks at the law as the key defining element of the light, keeping the Sabbath, etc., etc. For the Gentile, that's not even an issue. But with Jesus' completed, finished work, that difference is set aside. It isn't saying anything about the law, because in Romans 7.12, Paul says the law is good and righteous and perfect. The problem isn't the law. The problem is the sinner who's a human being. So Jesus fulfills all those obligations of the law, therefore therefore rendering inoperative, setting aside another dividing point between Jew and Gentile. It's no longer an issue. It was before Christ. It no longer is an issue. It's been set aside. It's been rendered inoperative. And then he goes on. By abolishing the law, the command is the ordinances, that, and this is the intended result, that he might create in himself one new man. Now, unfortunately, you know, in the 21st century, that has all of the affront of it's just a male. That's not what it means. It's gender neutral. But what he's referring to is a new entity. Something before AD 33 that didn't exist. After AD 33 is the year, April of AD 33 is when Jesus died, when the cross was resurrected. Before that, there was no church. After that, there is. Something new results. Some new institution comes into being. Some new entity comes into being. That new entity is a new man. It's the church, it's Jew and Gentile united together in place of the two. What's the two? Jew and Gentile. Now there's one. Who's that one? (laughs) You're a member of Christ's ecclesia. That's the word church. You're a member of a new institution, the church. Jew and Gentile, they are now no longer relevant ways to now you're one. And there he repeats it again, so making shalom, so making peace. Where there had been hostility, that barrier, that dividing wall, has been done away with. Where there had been hostility, the law is now fulfilled and set aside and rendered inoperative. So the result is those differences are gone. There's now one new entity. It's something brand new, and peace is made. And then he adds, and that he might reconcile us, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing. Oh, that's strong, but it's good translation. Killing the hostility. And so the reconciling here, you know what reconcile means? To bring together us, who's the us, Jew and Gentile, into one body. The body is Paul's favorite metaphor for describing the church. Through one body, through, in one body through the cross. And, and he, he, he's correct there, because Jesus' death on the cross did away the hostility. And he it's very strong, and, and I like how the ESV has chosen to translate that, killing the hostility. And so you have this, this fantastic description by Paul, and this is how I outlined it in your notes there on page 5. That Jesus, Jesus is the peacemaker. He's the shalom maker. Where there was hostility, where there was division, no longer. He creates something brand new. And that brand new entity reconciles two seemingly hostile parties into one new body. The ecclesia of Jesus. The church of Jesus. Jesus. Now he not only he not only achieved this peace, he made this peace, he effected shalom, he also preached peace, which I want to talk about here in just a minute, starting with verse seventeen. Well, let me stop here. We've covered a lot. We've dealt with a lot. Are you with me? Do you have any questions? It's 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 a marvelous, Doctor Eckman. Yes, go ahead. John, go ahead. Okay,
1: what are we talking about? All of the Jews, or just those that are following Christ uh, when, when uh, in in this merger of the Gentiles and and the Jewish Christians?
0: Because he is, it's talking about those those who have put their faith in Christ. Right. Okay. So the so-called Orthodox Jews that are.
1: Inside the temple and everything like that, they're they're not part of this.
0: No, I, I mean, it's now possible for them to be part of that, but for them to be part of this new entity, they have to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. That's good to clarify that. Thank you. Good. Anything else? Can you, this is going, uh, can you give a uh, a
1: current day application of this because what's rolling through my head is if you were a Hindu looking at Christians globally, the church, Catholic, Protestant, Lutheran, Anabaptist, evangelicals, let's go down the list of um, Christians and how we label ourselves. because in my in my mind, I almost feel like the Catholic Church feels like they are the the Jerusalem first church, right? If, and don't don't cross don't 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 cross this wall. Don't, don't you you don't do it the way we do it, kind of a thing, right? Very canon related, very very um, methodical in how they do things, right? Now, can you give kind of a
0: compare and contrast to modern day with this? Um. Well, Glenn, you're, you're wanting me to open a Pandora's box here, and I, I I kind of would like to keep it closed. That's for another day? Okay. No, no, no no no, 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 I'm, I'm, I will, I'm being a little facetious there. I, I'll answer your question, but I'll answer it in this way. Um, what you are saying, and even as you gave some illustrations to it, um, for a person who is outside, completely outside of Christianity, not only... Spiritually, but in even a cultural sense, and you used a wonderful example—a Hindu, uh, for example. Um, it is this is a challenge that often, when, for example, a Hindu or a Buddhist or even really a Muslim hears the word Christian, what what they're what they're really thinking about here, what they're really um, framing in their mind in terms of understanding is an institution, a structure, a hierarchy, etc., And that's unfortunate, because what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is not an institution, not a hierarchy, not a building, not a structure. He's talking about a relationship. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. That's a relational concept. And therefore, for you and me, as I do not like the word evangelical anymore. You and I, as biblically-centered Christians, our focus, and the focus is I've talked with Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims. I've talked with more Muslims than anybody else, but I try to state it this way. I'm not talking about a structure. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a relationship, a relationship with the living God And that relationship with the living God is possible through His Son and what He did for us on the cross. What we celebrate at Easter. That's how I usually put it. And that relationship is established by putting your faith in what He's done for you. That's You see what I'm saying? That's totally getting away from structures, buildings, hierarchies. That's focusing, and this is what Paul is focusing on in this point. What God did for you individually, chapter 2, 1 through 10... God has done corporately for all people who have put their faith. The people that are being described in 1 through 10 are part of some new entity, which he's describing in 11 through 22. And that new entity is called the church. But it has a lot of other metaphorical meanings. He's going to end up here at the end. It's the new temple of the living God, which is an extraordinary statement for a Jewish person in the first century to hear but it's part of, of, Glenn, what I think you and I have to intentionally try to, what are those preconceived barriers that people have that are cultural and spiritually outside of biblical Christianity? We have to anticipate that what is what they are and immediately neutralize them by stressing that biblical Christianity is about a relationship. It is not about a structure, a hierarchy, a building. And that if I, can, if I can get past that with a person, there's usually more of an opportunity than to talk about some substance and some content that has nothing to do with structure or even tradition. So, Glenn, that's a way in which I would start to deal with some of what you're, you're, you're expressing in your concern. Does that help a little bit? Sure. You with, with me on that? Okay, good. Good. Okay, that was really a good question. All right, anything else? Now, following my outline, then in in verse, in verses 15 and 16, excuse me, verses 17 and 18, Paul switches a little bit. He is our shalom. Now he focuses on he preached shalom, preached peace. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Now, note that. Because that's following what he had said earlier in verse 13. Who are those who are far? Gentiles. Who are those who are near? Jews. Jesus preached shalom to both. and that, And that, if you look at the gospel accounts, you see that Jesus did that. Jesus not only preached in Jerusalem, not only preached in Galilee, he preached up in Tyre and Sidon, which was Phoenician country. He preached up at Caesarea Philippi, which is Gentile country. He preached in Perea, which is Gentile country. So Jesus is preaching to both. And through his apostles, Paul, who wrote this, he's still preaching to them. Same message. Peace to both. Shalom to both. The same message you come to a relationship with the living God through putting your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work that's the message of peace and so Paul says, because he was our peace preacher verse 18 for through him or by him you could translate that into him is Jesus we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I put there in, in blue and put it in brackets, verse 18. There's a reference to the Trinity, just like we saw in, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. That's why Ephesians is sometimes called the Trinitarian epistle. Paul keeps bringing that up. But notice that word, access. That is a key word in the book of Hebrews. That is a key word that is used when in, 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 in the gospel accounts. When it tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the, the curtain, which was about four inches thick, that separated the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple, was rented. It was torn. Now access to God is available to all because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You put your faith in him in his finished work. You now have 24-7 access. But this is wonderful how Paul does this. It's exactly what Jesus said. You, Jesus, Jesus speaking. When I go back to the Father, your prayer life is going to change. You ask anything in my name, and the Spirit, who's the energizing power within you, will now enable you to have 24/7 access to the to the Father. And so you have this wonderful expression now of the new relationship we have with God, where before we put our faith in Christ, our relationship was condemned sinner to the judge of the universe now its child and heavenly father and this this wonderful dynamic that is the holy spirit who is that energizing force of the new covenant community now enables us and empowers us to have this access and so then the the result of all this the result of everything he's been discussing from verse 11 to verse 18 You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, I just put in brackets, because the language there is like you're part of a new entity, too. This new entity is a new nation. It's no longer the nation of Israel, it's the nation of Christians. And we call the citizens of that new nation of Christians saints. And then he adds... And members of one household, the family of God. And that's part of what stems and flows out of father. So new citizens, new household, new family, and then last two verses, new temple. Now, just think about that for a minute. You're speaking to a Gentile who has now been exposed to the gospel message is now reading the Old Testament, is now exposed to the Word of God, and is reading about all of these things in the sacrificial system and all of that. Paul's just explained, one, why that was necessary, and two, how Jesus fulfilled all that. And now that is all set aside, because now there's one new nation, and everybody's a saint and a citizen. There's one new family, and everybody's a child, and there's one new temple and everybody can worship in it. Now, men, I'm trying to really stress this. This is absolutely radical and absolutely revolutionary. In the first century, this was like a bombshell, because what Paul is saying is, the most honored thing for you to be is not a citizen of the Roman Empire. The most honored thing for you to be is the citizen of God's kingdom, the new nation, the kingdom of God. And the most treasured thing you can be is not be a member of an astute, an, 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 an affluent, prestigious Roman family. It's to be a member of the family of God. And not to go to a temple in the Greco-Roman world dedicated to Zeus, or even if you're a Jew, to the temple on Temple Mount. You, this new citizenry, this new family— you're also the new temple of the living God, because God, through his Holy Spirit, indwells you. And what Paul's going to do in verse 20, 21, and 22 is describe this temple, this new structure, this new entity that God, God is building, so to speak. So I have uh, I have a slide on this I want to show you too, but let's read it, and, and I want to, before I go on, make sure you're all with me. Everybody okay? Can I keep going? All right, now let me read, let me read verse uh, 20, 21, 22 together, and you'll notice how I, I, I put little blue terms and underlined them in brackets, because he's talking about the foundation of this new entity, the formation of this new entity, and the function of this new entity the foundation it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit and so if you let me now go to this structure here you have a copy of this on the left-hand side is not a very good drawing, but it's nonetheless a drawing of of the church. And you'll notice that the cornerstone is Jesus. And it's built on what the Old Testament prophets stated and what the New Testament apostles have declared, and then it grows into that. So starting at the bottom, the formation is Jesus. But that formation he's the cornerstone is also built as a foundation on the old covenant prophets, the Jeremiahs and Isaiah's and Micah's and Habakkuks, etc, of the Old Testament, which Jesus Christ fulfilled all those prophetic oracles and then the New covenant apostles, starting with the eleven and then Paul and Philip and many 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 others they they form that foundation, and it is formed into a new structure, the new temple of God. And that new temple of God has a function. It's the dwelling place of God the Holy Spirit. So the church is the new covenant community and the new temple of the living God. Now, remember, remember when Paul wrote this epistle, the temple in Jerusalem still stood and that, again, is what he is arguing in these verses. That, new, that old temple and temple mount is irrelevant. It's no longer necessary. It's no longer needed. It was a tremendous, blessed of God. That's where the sacrifices occurred. That, that, was, that was important, but it's been fulfilled and completed, set aside now, rendered and by Jesus. Where is the new temple? It's the, it, it's the covenant community the new covenant community, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then he isn't talking about it here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Individually, you, each one of you is a new temple, the temple of the living God. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so the imagery, which is a part of the old covenant, is transferred into the imagery of the new covenant. So just think about that for a minute. The old covenant had a priesthood. Does the new covenant have a priesthood? Does the old covenant have a high priest? Does the new covenant have a high priest? Yes. Jesus is the high priest. Hebrews argues that. Are there priests? Yes. You and I are the priests of the living God. We now represent him. And where? Where? In his temple. Is there a temple in the new covenant? The temple is the new covenant community. It's the church. It's not that building down the street on a corner. It's the organic body of Christ, and it's individually and corporately indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So Paul, he's using, now listen really carefully to this sentence. He's using the language of the old covenant to establish some continuity with the new, but the new is totally different same imagery, same language, but totally different. Why? Because Jesus Christ set aside, rendered inoperative, the old because he fulfilled it, and instituted the new. There's some continuity, but there's much discontinuity between the old and the new. And you and I are a part of that new covenant community, which Jesus also calls the church. And so, as we go back to this this meaning these verses, it's. I I, I keep saying this, but this is absolutely awesome what Paul is doing here. And for you and me, we read it and we acknowledge how awesome it is, how extraordinary it is, but you've got to remember what this would have been like in the first century. This is radical stuff. This is radical revolutionary stuff. And for people to process this, and internalize this, this is the key to that sanctifying growth that Jesus wants in each one of his believers. Let's put it another way. There's probably no no chapter in the Bible quite like chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10 summarizes your new position as an individual believer, an individual saint, by faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no other passage in Scripture that quite summarizes this new covenant community, like 11 through 22 does. It helps us to understand how did Jesus break down the barriers? He established peace by shedding his blood. And those who are far off are now brought near because he is our shalom. And he's broken down all the hostilities. He set aside and and, and rendered inoperative the law. And he has also preached the peace. He preached it and proclaimed it. And the end result of this new covenant community is you are now part of a new nation. You're citizens of a new nation, the kingdom of God. You're a member of a new family. You're a child in the family of God. And you now are a priest in the new temple, the new covenant community. And that language of priest is what Peter uses in his epistles, First and Second Peter, to refer to the saints of the New Covenant community. We're priests of the living God. We represent him to the, to the world. And so this just is a fantastic passage of Scripture. I, I love this passage, and I, I hope what I've done with both teaching it as well as showing you a couple of those visuals that have made this come alive for you. Um, and, and I hope we've achieved that. Are there any questions, uh, further questions about all this? I would love to make a, a tremendous thought paper assignment just to make sure. But I know I don't do those things. I'm dreaming. There's an old song. Dream along with me. I'm on my way to you. That's what I do. All right. Any questions? All right. If there are none, then we're going to begin. Uh, what time is it? only got about ten minutes or so here. We're going to begin chapter three, and it's it's a very different, uh, very different section, uh, and it, it's appropriate. I'm trying to get. I don't have my notes up on that yet. Let me get that out here real quickly. Yeah, uh, chapter three begins a, a a new section here as Paul begins to. To describe a, and he really starts, he really starts a prayer, but he's interrupted, and that interruption is a little bit difficult in the grammar of the passage, and I want to get to that. Let me get to this passage here. Now, again, um, I have this on the on the slide here. He, he he sounds like he's beginning a prayer here in verse one of chapter three. So in your notes and on the slide, I've entitled this, A Parenthesis on the Mystery. Now, I want to explain what that, because the mystery is the term that's used here in the text, but what does he mean by that, and and why do I call this, and why often is it called a parenthesis? Let me read these first couple of verses. For this reason, now in, in in the Greek language, that's a very important structural marker but it's connecting with what he just said, with what he's about to say. For this reason, what I just explained in verses 11 through 22 about this new covenant community, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Remember, as we stated when we began our study of Ephesians, Ephesians is one of the prison epistles of Paul. The other three are Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. He's a prisoner in Rome, that prison in Rome that's described at the end of Acts 28. And he is there for preaching to the Gentiles. That's what got him in trouble with the Jewish people in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, which ended up getting arrested, which ended up in his field of Rome, etc. So he's in prison because of his ministry. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace as the apostles of the Gentiles, that's what I put, that's what he means by that, that was given to me for you. What is the stewardship that Paul has been given by God? Stewardship of grace to take this message to the Gentiles. He became known as the apostle of the Gentiles. I'm in prison because I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. That has been given to me for you. How the mystery, here we get into what's a little difficult, How the mystery was made known to me, my revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, when you and I in English read the word mystery, you think of Agatha Christie, or you think of the greatest television detective ever, Columbo. That's not what it means. What we're doing is we're taking the Greek word, it's musterion, and bringing it into English letter for letter. We call that transliterating. And that's the problem, or that's the challenge here. It, I mean, it really is. Be, oops, sorry. What, what does he mean by mystery? Well, the term musterion and it means something that was hidden in the past is now revealed. So Paul writes, the mystery was made to to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. What revelation? Well, the mystery, that which was hidden but is now revealed, is what God is doing through Christ as the shalom maker and shalom preacher between Jew and Gentile. Because in the Old Testament, it's hidden that God's going to create a new entity— it will be called the Ecclesia of Christ, the Church of Christ. The word church is not in the Old Testament. The institution of the church is not in the Old Testament. It's intimated. It's hinted. Because remember, in, in Genesis 12-3, when God says to Abraham, get out of Mesopotamia, because in you all the nations will be blessed. Now, that to, to Abraham, I'd have no idea what that meant to him 4,100 years ago. But you and I have a full understanding of what that means. It will be the blessing of salvation. It will come through the Jewish people. And so he got that straight, but that means all nations, all people, Jew and Gentile. How's that going to happen? Paul said, this was made clear to me by revelation. Jesus met me on the Damascus road and then began to reveal to me clearly what all of these Old Testament texts mean, how all of the Old Testament texts apply to Jesus. And so Paul is saying, this mystery, this, this, this which was hidden and not clear in the Old Testament, was made clear to me, was revealed to me, now I understand what he means by this. And so when Paul writes now, as I've written briefly, What he's written about in his other epistles and what he's written about in this epistle. About this new entity that God's created. Now he goes on. Which was made known, excuse me, which was um, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So when you read what? What I'm writing you'll be able to gain my insight. You'll be able to understand how I have begun to understand the content of the mystery of Christ. It was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, but it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. And so this becomes extremely important in understanding that this revelation of this new entity is clarified and further revealed through the Holy Spirit to the, to the apostles, Paul is one of those, and the prophets, those who proclaim the truth through the Holy Spirit. And what is the content of the mystery? Verse 6. That Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what he has been talking about in chapter 2 is the content of the mystery. What had been hidden is now revealed. And it's made clear to the apostles, which we are now proclaiming. It's made uh, clear to the prophets who are declaring or proclaiming, teaching and preaching this truth and the Holy Spirit is the energizing power and authority of this. What is it? Fellow heirs. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, that, that is developed in other parts of the New Testament, but we're joint heirs with Christ. This new nation, the kingdom of God, we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom. And it's not going to be a distinctive difference between Jew and Gentile. All believers are joint heirs with Christ, one of the major thesis statements of Galatians chapter 4. Members of the same body, the church, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. That's singular. What promise? The new covenant promise. And so that's a very, it's a singular word there. It's one promise, one covenant, the new covenant the gospel. And so, and again, what Paul is summarizing here is the, in fleshing out just a little more detail, what he's been saying in 11 through 22 of chapter 2. Okay? Now, ben,
1: yes. had a question please. for you. Yeah. Um, in regard to, uh, can you hear me? Is this? Uh,
0: yes. Yes.
1: Paul okay. um, uh Saul studied under Gamaliel, right? For, That's right.
0: That's right.
1: Which was a very learned Jewish teacher. But then, after this revelation on the road to Damascus, did he engage in further study? Did he go off and study for some period of time uh, to further understand what was being revealed
0: to him on the road? Absolutely. To Damascus? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, and you can you can work through this as you study Galatians one and two, as well as Acts. When Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, uh, and it's probably about AD thirty six, and then when he is called out for the first missionary journey, it's it's AD forty eight, early forty nine. That's thirteen years, and that thirteen year difference. He's up for the most most of that time. He's up in Tarsus, his hometown, in the uh, eastern part of what today we modern Turkey. And I believe there is where he, he he gave himself to a much more additional thorough study. And I think that's part of this. The term revelation is not just a one-time, you know, insightful bang, Jesus met me. It's an ongoing revelation of, of exalting from Paul's study of the Old Testament, because this is what transformed Paul When he understood that Jesus was the Messiah, and not only the Messiah of Israel, but his personal Messiah, it therefore changed everything that he had studied under Gamaliel I and and the other things he had done as a Pharisee. Because now he's processing all of this with all of those promises have now been fulfilled. All of the promises in the Old Testament prophets, everything that they'd said about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus fulfilled all those. And I think it's, it's that theological premise that began to change how Paul read, understood, and put together the theology of the New Covenant community. Because Paul is the theologian of the New Covenant community. And I think it was working through all that, we see the fruit of that, for example, in the book of Romans. Paul didn't come up with that one night. It took him, I mean, he worked through all that. And it just, it shows how, the one that shows his brilliance, but it shows also his understanding. If Jesus is my Messiah, then everything changes. And therefore, everything that's prophesied in the Old Testament is fulfilled. I mean, it's, so, I mean, this is something when I get to heaven, I, and I'm thinking (laughs) we're going to be able to do that. I want to talk to Paul about this i mean we 're going to have the new heavens and new earth for eternity I think i 'll have enough time to ask him about this, but I would just love to ask him tell me what happened in those thirteen yeah. years. yeah, what did you do yeah, and I think part of what he 's going to say is how much how much he studied and processed uh, everything with the premise that Jesus is my messiah
1: and that's you know what you just shared is as um Sort of an encouragement to us that it's it's a journey as a Christian. It's not just a snapshot, and, That's right. and we're fully uh, we're colored fall. in with all the details. He's it's it's a process, and in that process, I guess we can appreciate, kind of like we have been married for many years, our spouses more and more, and the reasons for yeah. that. So it's uh, I, I'm uh, thanks for giving us that encouragement, Jim.
0: You bet. All right. Well, it's uh, time for us to stop, I think. Tomorrow, then, we'll pick up with verse 7. Uh, no, not tomorrow. Next Wednesday, uh, excuse me. We'll pick up with verse 7, and, and it's kind of like he goes off on a tangent. And I'll explain what I mean by that, but it's it's another wonderful passage. So it's. Uh, I hope you're agreeing. This is a rich book that's uh, very worthwhile studying. And it gives us insights that uh, we don't quite get from other books of the Bible. It's one of my favorite books. I love to teach Ephesians. Okay, I'm going to pray. Lord, we are grateful for the book of Ephesians, for the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you promised in John 16 that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, would be our guide. The one who inspired it is the one who teaches. I'm merely the instrument. Your spirit is the one who's teaching one who is helping to internalize these grand truths this is part of the transformation process this is part of growing on that journey to become more and more like christ and i just thank you for the privilege to be that as the instructor thank you for each man all that is going on in their lives pray that you'll help them and give them special enablement and grace for all that you're asking them to do help them in their special needs or requests you know their heart you know what the areas of need are So, Lord, meet each one according to your perfect will. I pray for each one that they can also be strong, strong, determined, men of faith, men of faith who are not shaken by all of the things that are happening around us, men whose, whose boots are dug deeply into the Word of God, who did not waver and blown by the winds of doctrine that are false and distorted, but know what we believe and affirm in what we believe so that we can stand and be the men of faith that then seek to represent you well in this dark world. Help us to do that and be that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, man, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.